Welcome to this week's episode of the HR and Flow podcast. In this episode, Neville talks to Owen Ferguson, Managing Director of Good Practice, about contemporary learning trends and skill acquisition in the workplace. Today we're joined by Owen Ferguson, the Managing Director of Good Practice. Owen, would you like to briefly introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Owen Ferguson. I'm Managing Director of Good Practice. Good Practice are a, a, a learning technologies company with a specific focus on helping managers perform better at work. And so we've got a range of products and services that we have to, to fulfill that goal. Owen, thank you very much for joining us today. And I know that you were at Learning Tech last week. Is there anything that you felt, um, what were the key messages really that came out of Learning Technology for you? Sure. Um, thanks, Neville. It's great to it's great to be on on the podcast. Um, I I think there were there were there were two strands of themes for me that came out of it. One is around the what is currently shiny and faddy in learning technologies, and then the second is concepts or ideas that seem to have moved more into the mainstream. People are actively experimenting at scale with them. So. In terms of the, the faddy stuff, and this is not to denigrate these technologies in any way, it's just to say that for me, personally, I think they're at a relatively immature stage. Last year, there was a lot of buzz about virtual reality, but not necessarily much of an idea about how you would um, implement that in practice. This year, artificial intelligence is this year's virtual reality. So from, from VR to AI... Uh, in the shiny thing world. But we did start to see some practical examples of virtual reality being used in corporate learning, albeit at the moment, I think it is out of reach for most learning functions. I think you either have to be working in a very technical company uh, or a company that has an awful lot of budget before you can take genuine advantage and make a good use of these things. But the the things that, that are more interesting to me are, are the practices that seem to be um, spilling over into lots of different areas interwoven into a lot of the sessions was this uh, idea of uh, user-centered design. The idea of testing and trialing, of using data to make decisions. Um, and, and I think that's something that's really starting to hit the mainstream of learning and development, and certainly in, in learning tech circles. And tied to that is this idea of iterative development processes. So I see that starting to seep through. So the idea of prototyping, of testing with real employees rather than just guessing about their preference or needs and then making changes based on that feedback in a much faster cycle than perhaps one that we've had in the past. And people are talking about that, not just in terms of digital learning, but also applying that to face-to-face experiences as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like it. I like the fact that we've now almost put definitions or if you like headings around some of these concepts I mean, the concepts are not that new, really, when you think about it, but the technology has enabled them to come alive. Yes. Uh, I think that those developments are helping immensely. If you think about user-centric design, for a long time, we and, and others have been talking about you know, the need for personalized blending, as in, you know, you are a provider of learning opportunity if you're in a corporate world. You can't make people learn but you can provide the opportunities for them to do so. But actually, it is really their responsibility to do so. That, to me, was, is always a, an interesting shift because quite a number of the learning and development functions that I speak to and meet 
still really deep down believe it's their responsibility to make people learn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where, and, and to find nice, fun ways of doing it and all of that kind of stuff. But actually, the real responsibility for learning is the same as the, the real responsibility for performing. It is, in fact, with that individual, ultimately. Um, and they've got lots of people to help them. Uh, and L&D is, is one of those providers of help, really. And I think that 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 uh, keeping it that simple helps people to understand what they can do in an organization. I like what you said about uh, VR and AI. You know, it is expensive at the moment. And, you know, what is the return on investment likely to be in what type of industry? You know, I can see that there are some some industries where it's probably going to be incredibly helpful. Those where you are looking as much as possible to reduce the risk of harm. Um, yeah. That type of thing, it could be amazingly helpful, but um, you know, we're yet to see it fully, fully unloaded in those areas. In terms of the uh, iterative development processes and, and, and learning design, I, I, I think that's fantastic. I mean, it's an amazingly useful progression. Um, tell me a little bit more about what that means to organizations. I think it, it's about taking a, a fundamentally different approach to building or designing something, whether that's a face-to-face experience, whether that's a, a digital resource. Um, it's about getting feedback in much more quick loops. So we've always had this concept of running a, you know, a pilot group first and yeah. acting on the feedback of that pilot. Uh, but I think um, in the past, I think learning and development has paid lip service to that rather than genuinely putting the user at the heart of the experience uh, of, the, you know, of both co-creating, uh, but also getting, getting feedback in loops uh, and testing and trialing concepts and ideas uh, in a much more quick fashion. And of course, this is something that, that has come from the software development world, first of all. I mean, basically, software developers were fed up with building software that where you know, they got a functional spec, they went away into a little corner, they built the thing, and then they showed it to the people uh, and then they found out that people hated it, that it wasn't solving the problem that it was <laughs> supposed to solve. That, that, that Despite the fact they had built it absolutely to spec. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think in that kind of environment where you get a very immediate and very harsh feedback, that's the reason why they've moved to more of this iterative approach. Um, and you start to see people like Sky, for example, adopting agile development practices. You know, an agile development is basically just this fast iterative loop yeah. Yeah, into the design of what they do. Yeah, and, and I think that the, the need for agility uh, is an interesting one. Um, I think the need, uh, the pace is an interesting one. I remember back at Abbey, you know, the, the speed of the e-learning design was very good in those days, but then of course technology became more complex and actually it slowed, that complexity meant it slowed development back down again. Having accelerated to a, to a new level of being able to deliver, suddenly the complexity of the possibility of the solution meant that it slowed it all down again. So I'm glad to see now that there are ways of bringing it to the, the market, as they say, a little bit quicker, uh, which, is, which is good. In terms of um, the decision-making and, and the need for data, uh, what sort of things did you see there that are, that are new? I don't think I saw anything new as such. I just saw more of a commitment. 
uh, to ah. it. Uh, there is definitely an appreciation that there is lots of employee data sloshing around in corporate systems. Uh, and a lot of people are looking to see how they can harness this data, uh, either whether it's to, to create more personalized learning, uh, whether it's to uh, provide people with better contextual support, just-in-time support, uh, based on what they're doing at a particular time. Um, so there's lots of, uh, th- there are lots of good examples. There's a company called HT2, um, who uh, work on the open source learning record store. They've got some fabulous examples uh, of, of data-driven dis- um, decision-making to help improve the development of courses or providing people with more relevant content uh, at a better, at the right time for them. Yeah. I think uh, almost, um, having worked in the measurement of impact for, for what now appears to be centuries, so that was the, the, the difficulties are, are still the same as they always were. It's really a case of, of getting inside the data to find out what really matters uh, and therefore what type of decision you really need to take uh, in the context of, of an individual organisation. And I've wondered whether or not we're beginning to see a realisation that the data you need is the data you need as opposed to what everybody else gets. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I think there's two strands to the data piece. One is very slowly, learning and development is getting better at uh, identifying um, what it is that that they ultimately need to change in order for to be able to say that they're having a positive impact. And there are ways of being able to to tie uh, learning interventions to genuine business outcomes are are improving. And I think. But like I say, that is a that is a slow burn. But I think I genuinely believe I have more conversations and smarter conversations with people in the L and D field around that than I have than I would have done even five years ago. The other piece is people are experimenting with and wrangling with the the vast amount of data that's being collected with employees and whether they can, whether they can genuinely use that in a positive way. And so, you know, but I would I would put that in a, we are, like most industries, finding our way with that stuff. Uh, and some organisations are further ahead than others. Yeah, and, and to be honest, I, I, I almost always thought, and I, and, and I like your thoughts on this, but the way to accelerate that path would be just to simplify everything and to be clear uh, on what any given element of learning support really needs to have. I agree entirely, uh, but simplicity is difficult. Uh, <laughs> you have to have to go through the complexity first, I guess. Yeah, and being able to design assessment and systems of evaluation that can that can get to the heart of whether something has worked or not. Or, or the degree to which it has worked or not uh, is is not trivial, and and you just have to look at some of the problems that the the world of psychological science is having with their uh, the replication crisis that they're experiencing, the problems with using sample sizes that are too small to be truly representative, and you know again you know in that in psychological science the the, the shiny exciting controversial results get all the you know get all the attention uh, uh-huh. and actually the really solid results that have been replicated over a, a considerable period of time don't get 
quite as much attention, but are, are actually more useful. And so yeah. I think we are in a bit of a lag, kind of experiencing those same growing pains in terms of our, our appreciation of how to use and evaluate data and how that results in impact. In terms of learning in organisations, clearly the ability to provide multi-options and access to learning modules, if you like, from in different methodologies would require some form of really good infrastructure. Did you see any developments in the learning infrastructure, the sort of places where you host and, and offer and access? Were there any major developments in that field, though? No, and to be honest, Neville, I think that the kind of infrastructure that will have the biggest impact on access and and engagement, are, it's not it's not the infrastructure that L and D can provide. It's the infrastructure that comes from IT departments. Uh-huh. Um, so we are seeing an awful lot more people moving to either fully cloud or hybrid based solutions. So whether it's Office three six five or or something similar to that, and crucially moving authentication to what's called a, a federated system so that you can get genuine single sign-on. Any device, anywhere, it's the same username and password, whether it's to get into your laptop um, or access to your learning management system or get into your intranet from whatever de- device you need to. And that is picking up, again, slowly but surely, IT departments are starting to, to move their infrastructure in that way. And what you see on the learning tech side is far more providers being able to support that kind of authentication and identity management. And that, that, that of course, opens the door for all types of learning preferences and all types of immediate need versus long-term need versus reinforcement versus so on and so forth. Because every successfully utilised provision of learning opportunity in the past had a place to play somewhere for someone, I guess. And I think what it allows, that kind of infrastructure allows you to actually get closer to closer to the work that's actually happening. So rather than learning being something that you do when you can find time to do it or when you're when it's been scheduled for you, you know, learning can be accessible at any point during your working day. And I think crucially, people don't necessarily need to recognize it as learning in order for it to be useful and for it to have an impact and for them to, to be able to apply that. I can see that. Um, it takes me back, but I mean, one of the one of the fears that uh, people have, and I, I think of this many decades ago, I was writing my, in my finals an essay on skill acquisition. And there was a quote by a gentleman called Robert Singer. I learned this quote, obviously knowing that I could get it into an essay somewhere in the exam. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and he, he defined skill as being acquired when it could be replicated consistently under intense pressure. And one of the fears I have just in time and with, uh, because we're looking at productivity as an issue, and clearly those people who are most skilled are able to work more productively than those who are less skilled. If you are learning and forgetting, in other words, you're just picking it up at that moment, what I would call the YouTube bow tie approach. Um, I know that, yes, we were able to achieve it once, but I wouldn't want to do it again without re-looking at the video. That slows the whole performance process down. What are your thoughts on that skill acquisition 
element of the sort of different learning technologies that you witnessed last week? I mean, I, I think it's important for people to recognise when you're acquiring long-term skills that can be used in a range of different contexts and when you're just providing performance support for something that happens relatively infrequently. So uh -huh. to give your, your bow tie example, if I wear a bow tie five times in my life, there is not much point in me going on a week-long bow tie tying course you know, to do that. I think the YouTube video will, will do me just as well. However, um, if I'm in a job where I have to wear a bow tie every single day, then it probably benefits me to pick up that skill in, you know, in something that's a little bit more intense, maybe not a week, I, I will admit. Um, so, you know, context is important. And also the depth of the skill, like if you're learning to play the fiddle, for example, you could probably pick that up over you know a long period of time by watching YouTube videos and you know practicing your fingering and, and what have you. But I think it might be more efficient to learn that skill by going to classes, going to weekly mm -hmm. classes. Yeah. So it's it's really a, a case of context and, and how much efficiency you need to find. Yeah. And I, and I love that whole idea of context in identifying which methodology might be appropriate for what or even when, right? Because it may be that uh, you initially need a skill relatively frequently, but actually it's one of those skills you can almost unlearn as time goes by. And then by going back to some short reinforcer, if you ever needed it again, you pick it up pretty quickly. When I think back, I was unpacking boxes at my parents and I had uh, notebooks from my university days when I studied maths and I had to look through them and it might as well have been actual Greek. Uh, instead of just a bunch of Greek symbols supposed to represent something. I mean, it was incomprehensible to me. And yet at the time, that was that made perfect sense. It's been a number of years, Neville, since I've been to university. Uh, but I, I think I think it would take me quite a considerable period of time. So it's it's, you know, how hard is the skill to acquire in the first place? How long has it been since you've applied that in, a, in any kind of practical way? And then, you know, what's the optimal learning method to re-pick up that skill? Yeah, the, the, a number of the, um, the methodologies that I think have, have probably now moved into mainstream, and even some of the bright shinies, occasionally, I think, come over the line which says, mm, are we actually really seriously believing that there is no need for classroom at all. I mean, that's that's one of the, the statements I've heard a number of the sort of um, advocates of certain methodologies say. The context situation you've just given tends to suggest that that isn't the case. But that also doesn't decry from the fact that if classroom time is necessary, surely there must have been some developments in the way that learning is managed inside a classroom. In general, there's a desire to optimize face-to-face. -face. So face-to-face wow. -face is great for certain kinds of learning experiences that, that you cannot replicate online. And so the question then becomes, well, let's not spend our time doing pure knowledge transfer stage mm -hmm. on the stage, doing a PowerPoint presentation in a classroom. Let's use classroom for practice with feedback in a safe environment. Let's use it for uh, discussion and debate. You know, the more social, the more, again, you know, social experiences can be enhanced, uh, you know, in a face-to-face -face setting. 
So I would never, I think anyone who's saying that there is no need at all for face-to-face is just on a, I mean, we are human beings, uh, you know, designed, uh, well, I say designed, I, I don't mean that, we have evolved, uh, you know, to, to interact in a face-to-face way. Uh, and so if it's possible to make that happen, you would be foolish not to take advantage of that for the right kind of thing. So I, I think, you know, people are looking at ways for technology to remove some aspects of face-to-face for where it's not well-suited. And then let's utilise that face-to-face time for something that's, that face-to-face can only do. And, that, and that's a great point. You know, it comes back to your point about context, doesn't it? You know, when it's the best way of doing it, well, let's try and achieve it, but let's do it in an appropriate timeline. Because there are some things that take time and there are other things that you can do relatively quickly. Nick Shackerton-Jones has a model or a concept called the care curve. And essentially what he says is, when the employee already cares, the level of support or the, the, the degree of intervention that you have to create to help them is relatively small because they will go and find that support themselves because it's, it's of high concern to them. Whereas where their level of care is relatively low, and let's be honest, quite often that is organisational initiatives that come from the top down, yeah. where there's not a clear what's in it for me, that's when L&D professionals have to create experiences to help generate that care almost, inspire that motivation. And those are the situations, I think, where a face-to-face experience has a lot more power. Owen, in, in terms of the, uh, the whole world of learning and development, if you had a a magic wand. Is there something that you would say, but come on, this is this really would change the, the, the world for people who are learning? Personally, I think having a learning and development profession that had a better knowledge of behavioural science and learning science, the real nitty gritty of what works and what doesn't work in terms of human learning, and then the confidence to make their case with senior management. I think that would make a difference because we, we spoke about the, the need for pace in organisations, but some of that is false pace. You know, a lot of the time, you know, a deadline for an L&D intervention isn't being driven for anything other than it's important to have deadlines. And we would be far better off finding out if the intervention actually worked. I think that's, that's a great point. You know, for me, pace is generated. And I promise not to reflect on the rugby. The, the great, uh, the great flyouts and the great passes of the ball in rugby generate pace onto it as it moves from one hand to another. For me, it's the individual's ability to learn faster and to think faster as a result of learning faster, which will enable them to perform faster in the workplace. That's the real issue, not the issue of how quickly we can provide the learning. And I think as well, there's, a, there's almost a faith-like belief that a new initiative or a new way of doing something is going to have a positive impact. Um, <laughs> but that's just not how the world works. Um, you know, you're going to have one of three conditions come out of any intervention. One, it will result in an improvement. Two, it will make no difference whatsoever. Three, it will actually have a negative impact. And so until you do some testing and measuring of that impact, 
You don't know which one of those three things are, and yet we are so keen to move at pace that we will blanket roll out new ideas, concepts, ways of working without stopping to check, does this thing work? Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the podcast. If you'd like to know more about learning trends and skills acquisition, visit our website, www.hrinflow.com or get in contact using the details in the description. Thank you for listening.